wife. Okay, friends. We are in the, uh, the parasha to Shavuot, that was this Shabbat. It was Bo, Exodus 10 to Exodus 13, verse 16. The corresponding Haftarah portion is uh, from the prophets, and it's from the prophet Jeremiah. And the interesting little uh, blends. I like this these these next couple of Torah portions because they, they give you a, an interesting taste onto how the Jewish people read the Bible with a fine-tooth comb and uh, and then how the corresponding prophets um, also make uh, some comments about this. And what Jeremiah is going to say and teach us and actually speak prophetically, I think is, is going to surprise a lot of us. Okay? Ooh, what is he saying? Well, let's, uh, let's tantalize that and, and see that one. Well, first of all, the Torah portion opens. Um, with Moses and Aaron still locked in battle with essentially the king of the world at the time, Pharaoh. And uh, uh, it, with three plagues are mentioned in this Torah portion. And it's going to absolutely devastate Egypt. Right? Egypt is never going to be the same again in, 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 in this. The... Um, the book of Exodus, as you know, is named Shmot Names, and yet, and 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 it's it's a book largely about people come finding their identity. So, uh, the, the 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 book of names opens with nobody having a name. Right? Pharaoh never gets a name; he's always just known as Pharaoh. The daughter of Pharaoh never gets a name. Initially, the parents of Moses aren't named, and uh, even and and Moses, his name is a an Egyptian name, and God finally reveals his name to to the people, where he identifies himself as you know, I didn't in the past uh, you knew me as El Shaddai, uh, but now I tell you what my real name is. So there's people are forming their identity, and Israel forms its identity in Exodus as, as a nation. And so Egypt is going to have a unique role uh, in Israel's incubation. Israel become incubates inside Egypt. They descend down um, under Jacob, um, although Joseph had gone ahead of time. But God will use Egypt to grow and nurture his people. Uh, he uses Egypt to save the known world under Joseph. And Egypt's going to have a, a role in the prophetic future because as Isaiah 19 says, there's going to be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Egypt had a role to play at the beginning of Israel and it's going to have a role to play at the end. And that's going to show up again in the prophet Jeremiah in, in uh, this, this week's Haftarah portion. But our climactic battle between Moses and Pharaoh and Aaron uh, continues, and um, it starts by saying, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children your grandchildren, how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know 
that I am the Lord. I mean, there's a lot there, even just in that that's um, um, paragraph to unpack. So first of all, it starts with just the the word of the parasha bo. And uh, in my English translation, I bet everybody's English translation says this. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh. That's what everybody's translation has? Yes, nodding your head. But that isn't what the word bo means. Bo means come. So what the God is actually saying to Moses, he's saying come to Pharaoh. Not saying go to Pharaoh, come to Pharaoh. Which next begs the question, because Jewish people are reading the text with a fine-tooth comb, they're looking for this kind of stuff. They look for words that are, are there, they look for words that are not there, and they look for words that are there but shouldn't be there. Okay? And this is one of them. If God says, come to Pharaoh, then the question is, where's God? If God was with Moses, then he would rightly say, go to Pharaoh. And he would use a different word. He would use lech. Right? which he's used before in into Abraham and well, just about everybody else. But here, he actually says to Moses, come, which puts the direction different. It's not that Moses is, God is standing next to Moses. God is with Pharaoh in Egypt. What is God doing in Egypt? I hear you ask. Because he went down with Jacob. God told Jacob, I will be with you in Egypt. So God is in Egypt with his people. Do they recognize his presence? No. Do they know that he's there? No. Do they know anything about him? No. But um, God is with his people and he's saying to, to, to Moses, come, come. We'll take him together. We, we can beat this guy. In fact, not only that, I've hardened his heart. Now, why would God do such a thing? Does not God give us free will? You know, is God taking over uh, 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 Pharaoh's mind and soul here? What's going on? Well, the Pharaoh has hardened his heart six times. And, um, and so God is rewarding Pharaoh's poor choice. Pharaoh has hardened his own heart and has made his, his line in the sand and has begun his journey toward a very dark place. And God is allowing it. And after a while, God even assists it. And you actually see this also in the New Testament where God says, I gave them over to their sins. Like they wanted to sin. They were reveling in it. And God said, no problem. I get it. I will help you. You won't like the result. Okay. I'm not going to struggle with you. I'm not going to contend with your spirit anymore. You, you've made your choice. And so God is, is, uh, is assisting Pharaoh's poor choice. And that, brothers and sisters, is a lesson we had all better learn horribly quickly. Okay, That if we continue in a, in a lifestyle of rejection, eventually God says, okay, I get it. Uh, I won't, I don't, you don't want me to send evangelists to you? I won't. You don't want me to send uh, my Holy Spirit to you? I get it. I won't. You, don't, you want people to stop reading the Bible in public? Okay, we'll stop. You won't like the result. Um, and so God is going to do something, and he, he tells Moses, now you, I'm going to be doing something incredible. Now you tell everybody about it. 
right now you're beginning to begin this this tradition this oral tradition you will tell your children and your grandchildren you won't just write it down and they'll read it okay you won't just put it on a little movie and they'll watch it okay it's tell okay you, you've got the oral tradition going on tell what i've done tell history repeat history again and again um, why? So that you may know that I am God. Sacred history is a vehicle of revelation. We sometimes forget that, okay? That we, we read the histories that are in the Bible and they are revelatory. And so you are, you're engaged in the process of telling stories to, uh, to our children, which reveals God, reveals his character, reveals his majesty, reveals his mercy, reveals his compassion. All the different stories that we have about God uh, reveal a little bit uh, about him. Um, all right. So that was just the, a, a little something that I thought I'll just throw in there, that uh, the way is, uh, Jewish people read, read uh, the, uh, the Bible is um, looking for words that... Should have been there. It should have said, Moses, lech lepero, go. But it's actually something else. So they, they figure out that, Moses, that God is with people when they're suffering. He hasn't abandoned them, even if they don't know that he's there. Uh, and so the, the next, the, one of the plagues that, that, that comes is darkness. And um, it's an interesting plague. Uh, it's a plague where the children, the, the Egyptians are dark, and the the uh, uh, it, Israelites have light. Now it doesn't say this in um, uh, the uh, in in the in the uh, the text, but <clears throat> if the Israelites it was dark, they couldn't see anything, not a thing for three days. You know, then what did they do? They must have run around and bumped into each other. And how did they feed their cattle? And how did they go to the bathroom? And you know, what, what did they do? How did they find water? Um, but the Israelites had light. So there is a tradition. It's a midrash. What's a midrash, I hear you ask? Um, a midrash is a story that is not true, but tells a truth. Right? And what do we call those in modern Christianese speak? We call those sermons okay and um, so this the the sermon goes something like this um, the Egyptians lived in darkness but the Israelites lived in light so whenever an Egyptian needed to do anything he had to call an Israelite for help he would say to his slaves you know come over here so that you can light my house so you know the Israelites were the light in the darkness oh where we heard that sort of expression before and uh, they would actually share their light they would um help the egyptians with their their housework and take care of the animals and things like that um and so uh one tradition says it also helped the israelites realize um which which egyptians were rich and which ones were poor because remember when they left egypt they asked the egyptians for um for their gold and silver and the egyptians gave it and they have a little tradition where the, you know, the, the Israelite would say, hey, uh, you, you, can you please give me um, some golden candlesticks? And the Egyptian says, I don't have any golden candlesticks. Yeah, you do. They're on the back shelf behind the painting next to the sun. I saw them the other day. You know, um, uh, but That was one way where they, they, they plunder Egypt. But the idea of um, being light in darkness, the idea of 
helping people, even when they're suffering, even if they're your enemy, you can help them in their suffering. And, uh, and, and the way of being actually a witness, even in other people's suffering. Um, and then you get the plague of the firstborn. And this is the 10th and last plague. And uh, this, this plague is the only plague of the 10 plagues, which, are, um, which is participatory. This is uh, the first nine plagues you don't actually participate in. God does it all. Right? The water turns into blood, you don't do anything. Okay, the, uh, the, the sand turns into gnats, you don't do anything. The, the, the frogs jump out the river, you don't do anything. Okay, um, but with the death of the firstborn, you have to put a lamb inside your house. You have to put the blood on the doorpost. You have to participate in this plague because if you don't, you're going to suffer. So the last plague, the plague that becomes the Passover, is participatory. The redemption is participatory in what you're doing. If you don't participate, you don't get redeemed. Okay. In fact, something really, really bad happens. Um, and so the uh, Pharaoh is warned about what's going to happen, and it's going to affect um, all of the all of the firstborn. Of course, he pays no attention. And then, as people are about to uh, uh, do the do the plague, chapter twelve comes along of the parasha. And, and, and starts telling you how you celebrate Passover. Now you, so suddenly you get, this is actually how you celebrate Passover. They stop. It's like time stops and you, have a, you begin a religious festival. Okay? You, uh, it, it creates time. This month is to be for you the first month uh, of, of your year. So you cre- the, 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 the plague the series of plague stops, and we begin to mark our calendar. And the whole community, okay, is to do this. Now, notice some things about this um, this animal, because we often, in our tradition, we will say Jesus is our Passover lamb. Okay, Every, everybody says that, right? Jesus is the Passover lamb. But look at what this Passover lamb does. First of all, it's not for individuals. It's for families. It's for communities. It's for a household. It's one lamb per household. It's not not that not for an individual person. Anyone inside that house, whether he believes in God or not, is going to be spared from the angel of death because Passover is not for sin. Passover is for keeping death away. And your belief in God is irrelevant. So if there was an Egyptian inside your house, he was saved. If there was a Moabite inside your house, they were saved. Okay? The, um, there was a, there, and you had to participate. So if you were an Israelite and you didn't put the blood on the doorpost, guess what happens to your firstborn? Now, notice that uh, in the festival, guess who doesn't die? or the plague of the firstborn. Pharaoh doesn't. So what does that imply? Right? He can't have been the firstborn. 
right? The, when, when, you, when, when you go through the plague, everyone in Egypt, even if you were in prison, okay, it actually says that those who are in prison were actually uh, also affected by this. Okay? And um, uh, now why are, why are prisoners, animals are affected by this? Everything is affected by this. The animal kingdom is affected by this. Those in prison are affected by this. It doesn't matter what your, your social status. Pharaoh doesn't die, so that tells us that Pharaoh actually wasn't the firstborn. Okay? We, don't, we don't know who he was. We don't know exactly which rank of, of society he was, but his son, his son uh, 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 perishes. Um, what do the, why do the animals have to die? Why, 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 why do you, what would be a good thought about that? Well, Leviticus. Leviticus, but also Genesis, right? The animal kingdom is in a relationship with humankind as much as people might not like to think about that. But uh, when God destroyed uh, Noah's flood or the world of Noah's flood, all the animals died too. Was it their fault? Were they evil? Okay. Um, they they are, are also part. They sh animals share in the fate of man. Okay, so in a war zone, okay, the animal kingdom also suffers. Okay, all the trees that the birds like to live in are all blown up. Okay, um, cats and dogs who used to love going into houses and playing with their masters, they get blown up just as much as the masters do. Okay? The animal world suffers, and and. And uh, the angel of death at Exodus didn't spare them either. The animal kingdom is part of the is has a relationship with the the human kingdom. Uh, the what's interesting about uh, a lot of this Torah portion is a lot of it ends up in the liturgy for Passover, and interestingly, in in chapter thirteen, verse eight, uh, it's which is going to appear in, in, in the Haggadah or the, the Seder or the, the um, liturgy for the, the, the modern-day Passover, um, when, when you're getting the um, instructions on how you're supposed to celebrate Passover and how you're supposed to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it says on verse 8, On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now, that would be true of everybody who actually came out of Egypt. But that would not be true for anybody who didn't come out of Egypt. So everybody born in the wilderness shouldn't be able to say this, this sentence. Right? This sentence should only apply to one generation, but it doesn't. It applies to every generation. And so, so the, one of the other aspects about sacred history is it actually becomes ahistorical. Time doesn't have a bearing. It doesn't, it's not linear. Time collapses. You become part of the story. You become part of the Exodus story so that you can actually say, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when he brought me out of Egypt, even though I personally have never been to Egypt. But you become part of the story, which is exactly the way it happens also, by the way, in the... Um, uh, in, in, in Christianity, we become part of the story. When we have communion, time is collapsing. We are becoming part of the event as though we were there with the Messiah, where he's breaking bread and handing it out to his disciples and saying, this is my body. We are becoming part of that event. 
And uh, uh, for those that are at Christchurch or have ever been to Christchurch, uh, on the front altar there are um, there are three uh, Hebrew words, and they say "Umakom raglai echaved." Actually, comes from uh, a verse of Isaiah, and it was put there by the Hebrew congregation. And uh, it says "Umakom" in this place, "raglai." My feet or my um, my legs, uh, echaved. Echaved is uh, uh, because it's biblical Hebrew can either be read um, passive or active, right? It's uh, it, it, the tenses don't mean what we think they mean, in, like is in modern Hebrew. So echaved could mean in this place, my feet. Echaved will give you worship, or it could also mean in this place I encounter your glory. And of course, what is, what's the which which one is it? And the Jewish answer is both. And, and uh, so this idea of when you're coming up to the altar, in this place, I encounter your glory. Like they understood, time has collapsed, and you become part of the of the seder meal with Jesus again. You're part of the Last Supper, and uh, so I encounter him, and then I give I give him glory. Does a they they, the, the, they they encapsulated the way Hebrew works. Um, really, really well. And uh, all right. And so that's, um, we're talking about a um, uh, the destruction of Egypt here. It is smashed by, by God. And the, 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 no one was unaffected. I mean, apart from anybody going not inside, inside the house. And so the Israelites are, are about to be sent out. So the next Torah portion is, Pharaoh's had enough, and uh, and he sends them out. But the but the plunder Egypt is plundered. Egypt is destroyed, and a mixed multitude goes with them. So it's not just Israelites leave Egypt, but Jews and Gentiles actually go out. So the population of Egypt uh, shrinks rather rapidly. So that's the background. So what Torah portion? Uh, what Haftarah portion do they choose to go with it? They choose uh, Jeremiah and his description of another destruction of Egypt. I mean, let's just smack them around a little bit more. And uh, in uh, Jeremiah 46, verse uh, 13, is where the Torah portion starts. And it says, this is the message that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to attack Egypt. So Egypt was smacked in um, by God and uh, through Moses and Aaron in the, in the Exodus, which creates the, the, the nation. Uh, and now Babylon and Egypt are going to have a fight. And Egypt being, uh, and it's true, the, the Egyptian Empire and the Mediterranean and the Mesopotamian Empire were both wealthy um, nations because they had access to large river systems. Uh, the, the, the Euphrates was one and the Nile was another. Uh, access to water allowed you to produce crops. Crops meant that you could feed big populations. Big populations mean you could have armies. Armies mean you could go around and conquer stuff. So if you actually wanted to be a great nation, you had to have a nice, good water supply. Uh, that was one of your core things. Well, So Mesopotamia and Egypt were always going to be 
um, fighting. Poor old Israel was in the middle, and the power shifted constantly like a good pendulum. Well, Babylon has been on the rise, and they're going to attack their rival Egypt. And unfortunately, Judah thought, you know, the Egyptians would come and help them defeat the Babylonians. Well, that was never going to happen. So announce this to Egypt and proclaim it in Migdal, proclaim it in Memphis and uh, Tafen, for Tafenhes. The, uh, these are uh, areas probably, probably around the border uh, regions between um, Egypt and, 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 and the Mesopotamian Empire. Um, they, got, they get a warning. Take your positions. Get ready. You know, God, God actually often tells his enemies, you know, get, your, get your weapons ready. He doesn't say, run, hide, I'm God, there's absolutely no way you can win. Um, rather, um, he actually calls his enemies to war, um, which is an interesting thing. Take your positions, get ready, for the sword devours those around you. What, why will your warriors be laid low? They can't stand, for the Lord will push them down. So even though the actual nations who are fighting, Egypt and Babylon, God, through the prophet, is revealing who actually is, is uh, directing all this. And it's the Lord. We're talking about two Gentile nations. God seems to be quite involved in the affairs of Gentile nations too, not just the children of Israel. Okay? Egypt and Babylon would, uh, will destroy each other. So why should the Bible care? But it does, because God is also involved in other nations. And Egypt in particular is a nation that he is going to um, be in war with. Babylon is a nation that he, that he uses. Israel will go into captivity, and Babylon will also um, uh, uh, be, be redefined in that nation. Where did Abraham come from originally? I hear you ask. Right? The Chaldees, from that region. What was his language that he spoke? Uh, Chaldean. And uh, then he makes the journey. He goes to the Holy Land, and then eventually Israel fails. Okay? It does not obey the Lord, and is eventually the temple is destroyed, and they are taken to captivity into Babylon. Read, read Daniel chapter 1, and it says that Israel was taken away, and they had to learn the language of the Chaldeans. They had to go back to where they began. They had to relearn the original language of their ancestor Abraham, and they had to relearn how to talk to God. Because one of the, the interesting things about the Chaldeans is they had a way of talking to the spirit world. So Nebuchadnezzar, when he has his magicians and he has his wise men uh, and his soothsayers and necromancers to try and tell him his dreams, he actually also brings in Chaldeans. Okay? The, all the other other uh, job descriptions were job descriptions, but Chaldeans is actually a race, and so uh, so it's interesting the way God um, incubates His people in Egypt, but He also you know Israel two point zero comes back from Babylon and and, re, and starts the the second temple. So those nations are actually very important to God. In fact, good old Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, got to write an entire chapter of the Bible. He gets to write uh, Daniel chapter four. Okay, so pagan king writes um, a piece of scripture. So, um, the next verse, they will stumble repeatedly, will fall over each other, so it's not working out well for our sunny Egypt. They will say, uh, get up, let, 
let's go back. Run, basically. Run away. Um, you, go back to our own people, to our native lands, away from the sword of the oppressor. Then they will exclaim, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Pharaoh never gets a name. Like, he never gets a name. He only ever gets a title. Uh, Pharaoh is only allowed noise. Right? The guy who once declared himself to be God and uh, told everybody he was divine, he was the river, he was the sea, okay? he has missed his opportunity. As surely as I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord Almighty. Pharaoh never gets a name. God defines his title. You think you're a real king. I'm actually the real king. You think you're God. I am the Lord Almighty. Okay. Yeah, you. Um, who will come? You will come to, to be like Tahor among the nations, uh, like Carmel by the sea. Pack your belongings for exile. And we normally think of exile. We normally think of the Jewish people who are exiled. Egypt is exiled. And uh, God has a dealing with this nation. It says, uh, and and for for all who live in Egypt, the Egyptians are going into exile. The Memphis will be laid waste, okay, and without a habitation. Egypt, then, then in typical prophetic, um, typical prophetic prose, you, you you go down one direction, which is doom and gloom and all, all horrible, and then switch immediately to another track, okay, and because you know, almost like a juxtaposition, a contrast of something. Okay, Egypt's beautiful, but uh, uh, but a gadfly is coming against her from the north. The north is often um, uh, a place of, of where the enemy comes from, but it's also a place of redemption. Okay? Um, you often will see uh, Gog and Magog and, 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 and enemies coming from the north, but also uh, in Leviticus, that's where you offer your sacrifices, always in the north. And in, it's in Isaiah that the northern tribes, Issachar and Zebulon, they will see a great light. Redemption will start in the north, but also that's also where danger will come from. Just like the east, everyone, you know, when you leave the Garden of Eden, you run east. East is where all the bad guys come from, but at the same time, that's where the Magi come from. That's actually also one of the directions uh, that the Messiah will return. So there's contrasts there constantly. The mercenaries uh, in their ranks, the, the guys who, who fight for money, are like, are like fatted calves, but they too will turn. They will flee together. They won't stand their ground. For the day of disaster is upon them, and the time for them is, is, is punished. Egypt will hiss like a fleeing serpent as the enemy advances in force. They will come against her with axes like men that cut down trees. They will chop down her forests, declares the Lord. It's often a scorched, scorched earth policy by enemy nations, because uh, usually they're not going to stay in occupy territory. They'd rather just destroy the land, sow the land with salt, and, and walk away. And it takes a long time for, for our nations to recover. These days, we like to conquer territory. Uh, the enemy are more numerous than locusts. They can't be counted. Uh, door to Egypt will be put to shame, giving into the hands of the people of the north. So there's quite a lengthy description of the destruction that's coming um, towards Egypt. But here's something that's going to be quite interesting. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to bring punishment. Uh, on Amnon, god of uh, Thebes, on Pharaoh, on Egypt, and her gods, and her kings, and on all those who rely on Pharaoh. I will give them into the hands of, of those who want to kill them, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. So, again, it's a retelling of something we already know. Okay, God is going to be using these pagan nations, which actually have a history and a responsibility and an impact on Israel in many different ways, both negative and positive. And Egypt's going into exile. Later, however, Egypt will be inhabited as in times past, declares the Lord. Israel is going to return. So not only will God bring his exiles back to Israel, but will also return the exiles of a pagan nation. How interesting. Egypt has a role to play in the future. And it's and it's linked to the to the um and it's linked to the history and the future of Israel. And and, uh, and in our modern world, Egypt has the greatest number of Christians in the Middle East in it. And so uh, though it's growing in Iran, yes, it's growing in Iraq and places like that, it's still the Egyptian Coptic Church is the largest church in, in the Middle East, and they send out emissaries. A little, little uh, unknown thing is they actually are a missional church. So Egyptians go and work in Jordan on the, on the farms and communities, just like we used to get Thai people here. And guess what Egyptians do when they're working in Jordan? They start churches. And who do you invite? They invite the people that they work for. And, uh, and so God is using this nation to this day, um, perhaps not as what we see, but he is. And so here, the prophetic voice is, I'm going to destroy Egypt, but I'm also going to bring it back. I have a plan for this nation. Okay? He doesn't say the same thing with Babylon. Right? While Babylon is used in another way, Babylon disappears. It is swallowed up by the Medes and the Persians. And you never hear of it again, except in negative terms, like the whore of Babylon. Like he, he gets uh, he gets used as a um, in a, in a, as, as a way to, as a symbol of the enemy, but as a nation itself, no, it's never never coming back. Um, uh, only towards the end of the prophetic portion do we actually start talking to Israel. All of this time we've been talking about Gentile nations. And finally we turn around to say, now don't be afraid, Jacob. I'm just smashing whole nations over here, tending them off into exile, and you guys are probably nervous, like, oh, what's going to happen to us? Yeah, the same to you. But still, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed, Israel. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. So they're going to get exiled too. But just like Egypt, you're going to be coming back. So there's, there's, um, uh, you don't have to turn around and go, oh, why is Egypt getting all the good, uh, good prophecies of, of, of return? Jacob will come back as well. You will once again have peace and security and no one will make you afraid. Uh, don't be afraid, Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, says the Lord. Although I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. Which is a, a very nice, comforting prof prophecy. Um, except, of course, if you're the part of the nation that's actually getting destroyed. Okay? Uh, you know, some, sometimes we have, we have to remember, what is the good news? It's good news for some and other interesting news for others. Okay. Um, the, the, the cross on, for some people looks beautiful and is a symbol of freedom 
and for others it's just just an article of pain and uh, and so we there's there's always seems to be um two 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 sides to this coin so i will discipline you the god's people also get chastisement just like egypt and babylon um but only in due measure and i will not let you entirely but i will not let you go entirely unpunished and so there's a, this this portion of scripture is a of this prophetic portion has punishment and and hope splashed over a whole bunch of nations in its connection as to probably why it was chosen in in connection with bo is because egypt in in exodus was was smacked and so they they took uh, another time where it was to, was destroyed and, and blended it and blended it together. In uh, uh, in Egypt, they, they come out uh, uh, to become a nation. It's not quite like being returned from exile, but in the prophetic portion, they they had been dispersed into many nations to be to be regathered and uh, and perhaps rediscover their identity once again. But remember. The initial name of this thing, come to Pharaoh. Where's God in all this? He's always with his people, even when they're suffering. He's always in the midst of something that's horrible. He is never afraid to be to be to to be to be with his his people. He's not he's not aloof from from their suffering. In fact, he's actually quite close and quite intimate, and that includes what's going on today. Okay. God is very close to every one of these people who are who are crying out in uh, in their moments of pain. 